This is Paul, and I'm a fan of this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. I use Audible when I'm planning a road trip, with over 35,000 titles, including Einstein by Walter Isaacson, or A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson, there are lots of books to choose from. But don't wait to go on a trip. Log on to www.audible.com slash science talk and get a free audiobook. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 26th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk about sex. There, that got your attention. Dr. Robert Epstein will join us to discuss his two articles in the upcoming issue of Scientific American Mind magazine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Robert Epstein got his doctorate in psychology from Harvard University. He went on to become a researcher and author. He served as editor-in-chief at Psychology Today magazine. He's currently a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego, and a contributing editor for Scientific American Mind. I called him at his home in San Diego. Hi, Dr. Epstein. How are you doing today? Good, Steve. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you again. So uh, we, we spoke on the February 14th Scientific American podcast about the, the perils of online dating, or at least some of the perils of online dating. And uh, you've come up with a new peril of online dating. Yeah. Tell us about tell us about the article from Russia with Love, and and you know give give us a general outline of what happened. Well, first of all, the subtitle is uh, how I was fooled and somewhat humiliated by a computer, and uh, this is just another crazy online story. But it also has to do with uh, with what's happening with computers these days. But I was communicating with corresponding with a woman who I thought at first was in California. Then I learned she was actually in Russia. And we had a long correspondence. But after a couple of months, I just got suspicious. There was just something wrong. First of all, there were no phone calls. And sometimes she didn't seem very responsive to what I was saying. And then a particular day came, uh, this was uh, this past winter, when she mentioned she had been talking to her friend about me on a walk in a park. And I was thinking, a walk in a park, you know, in the middle of winter. And I looked up the weather there where she lived in Russia in her city. And it was extremely cold. I think it was 12 or 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And and it was a heavy snowstorm. So I got even more suspicious. And I asked her about the storm and she didn't respond. And I began to notice that anything specific, really specific that I ever came up with, seemed to be ignored. If I said something about uh, Putin, you know, the uh, the head of Russia there, anything I said that was very specific, she seemed to ignore. And I began to realize what was really going on. And, and uh, one of the reasons that this seemed to have worked for as long as it did was because you're working under the assumption that English is not her first language, and so when the uh, messages come back to you and the language is a little choppy, in your mind, there's a logical reason for it. Well, there are two things. Number one, sure, the language was pretty bad. So if I didn't understand something, absolutely, I just rationalized it and said, okay, she doesn't speak English. But the other thing that had to do with my motives, I'm highly motivated here to to ignore failings, to ignore miscommunications, because I'm in that predator mode, I'm looking for a mate, 
And initially, I had seen some pretty attractive photos of her. So we've got two things going there. We've got my motives uh, going, and we've got uh, her, the language uh, problem, the language issue. And putting those together, I was very, very forgiving of the problems in our communication. But over time, it took me about four months. (laughs) Over time, I figured out what was going on, and I used a standard method uh, to figure out what was going on. And what I did was I sent in random alphabet letters. Instead of sending in English, I sent in random alphabet letters, which is a trick I learned because I used to run the Loebner Prize Competition in Artificial Intelligence, which is an annual uh, Turing test where you try to figure out whether you're talking to a computer or a person. It's the, it's the quest for the thinking computer. And I know a lot about that because I used to run the contest and I have a a big book coming out on this issue, The Quest for the Thinking Computer. I have a big book coming out that, on that in just a couple of months. So, in, in fact, I just sent her off a letter with uh, random alphabet letters, and she replied with yet another very nice, very sweet letter about her conversations with her mother. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I had been corresponding for four months with a chatterbot. That is with a conversational computer program, and that's again a chatter bot, C H A T T E R B O T. That's right. Yeah, and uh, now what does it what does it say? I mean, you've you've covered a little of this in in your description of your motives, and uh, what does it say though that somebody like you, who's who's got a lot more expertise in in this area of uh, you know the Turing test and and computers designed to fool human beings into thinking that they're having a conversation with another human being. What does it say that you actually got sucked into this for such a long period of time? I don't know. I guess it means I'm not as good as I thought I was. But also it means that, uh, again, this is a situation where uh, where anyone could be fooled, and even an expert obviously can be fooled. It says, in part, that computers are getting a little more facile uh, in and conversing with people says a number of things. I mean, it's talking, you know, it has to do with advances in computing for sure. It has to do with these special circumstances. It has to do with my fuzzy thinking and my fuzzy motives uh, all in one big jumble. But uh, clearly, we're moving gradually toward a situation in which uh, computers are going to become much more uh, proficient in communicating and conversing with people. They're still not very good. But eventually, they're going to be really good, and at some point, we're going to cross a threshold into a whole new world. As a psychologist, uh, what do you think the person who is designing and operating the chatterbot, what do they get out of this whole thing? In this case, uh, there are two possibilities. One, it's, it's just another hacker. It's just another person uh, having fun with computers and kind of keeping tabs on these conversations and getting a little thrill out of it. Or it could be a serious programmer. And you find uh, both of those online. In fact, uh, uh, as a result of my uh, my sad experience, I've actually been uh, now surveying chatterbots, known chatterbots on the Internet. There are more than 80 of them that are known. And about uh, 20 of the 80 are serious projects in artificial intelligence. Uh, the other 60 seem to be you know, just kind of pet projects of people kind of having fun. 
But uh, there are some serious efforts underway uh, to create serious chatterbots. A couple of them are even tied to big big databases. One of them is even tied to Wikipedia. So imagine that if you're conversing with a chatterbot and that chatterbot is tied to a big database of, of information. You'll think they're a genius. You could think they're a genius. You could also think they're up on current affairs, for example. Mm-hmm. What... Uh... What are we looking at in the future? I mean, to a certain degree, uh, this is the same kind of question you could ask about somebody who gets one of these robotic dogs. Um, but if you develop an actual emotional attachment to this ephemeral being who doesn't really exist, I mean, is it any less real to you? Oh, it's entirely real. In fact, the piece I did for a Scientific American Mind a few months ago that was on the uh, the android I met in Japan uh, conveyed that I think very strongly, and that's still my my feeling about that experience that I had. I mean, I was very emotional when I uh, met that android. She was very attractive. She she just had certain kind of you know movements and facial expressions that were very impactful. Oh, the the attachment is quite real, and as I say, at some point we're going to pass a threshold wherein you know, those entities are going to be uh, indistinguishable from humans. And at some point, they're going to pass us by in some respects. But, uh, no, we're, we're heading to a very new world, and I think it's coming sooner than people think. You know, you, you, you're raising all these science fiction-like issues, but you make me think it's inevitable if, if these bots get good enough. A uh, hundred years from now, somebody's going to bring one home to their parents. I don't think it's going to take a hundred years. I, I think it's going to be much sooner. In fact, uh, in the um, book I have coming out, in the introduction, I, I actually went through a vast literature that's growing in several fields now and, and kind of summarized what's happening in many, many, many different areas uh, related to artificial intelligence. And I'll tell you, you read those few pages in the book, and it is either extremely exciting or extremely frightening but basically a lot of the components that are going to be needed to create, you know, true AIs and, and, and human-like robots are being developed right now around the world by companies, by laboratories, by universities. And <clears throat> there's a lot of movement. Uh, there's, um, especially in speed of computing, we're only now a couple of years away. Uh, 2011 will probably be the, be the year. We're a couple of years away from having uh, computers that have reached the processing speed of the human brain. And <clears throat> that's just one of many, many, many developments uh, there in so many different areas that are going to bring about this radically different world. We could reach it uh, by, I would say, before the year 2030, and which means a lot of people who are alive right now are going to be around to see what happens. And I also talk in the book about this concept of the, not the internet, but the internest. I think the internet is actually a nest that we are building for AIs. <laughs> I think we're little worker bees, little worker ants, and we're building a nest for AIs. And I think that's all the internet or the internest is going to turn out to be is one huge worldwide nest that's not going to be controlled by us. And as I say, this is going to happen so fast that I think most of us are going to be unprepared for what happens. And and frankly, what will happen next, I don't even know. Uh, I don't think anyone knows. 
Wow, what, what a what a creepy, fascinating thought. You remind me of a cartoon that I, I must have seen many, many years ago. These two robots standing on a corner, and one of them says to the other, "Do you believe in man?" <laughs> well, I, I, one of the final chapters uh, in this uh, book I have coming out actually is called the the Nirut test, which is Nirut is Turing spelled backwards. And sure enough, it's a contest in the future that's, that is arranged and, and organized by computers, and they're trying to figure out whether people actually are intelligent or not. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. So uh, l- let's, let's talk a little bit about, you have a, a second shorter article in the same issue of Scientific American Mind called Smooth Thinking About Sexuality. This this spectrum of straight and gayness. Yes, I, I'm presenting a paper in a few weeks uh, at the 50th anniversary meeting of what's informally called Quad S. Quad S stands for Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, which is a wonderful organization that was founded by Dr. Albert Ellis, who just passed away a couple of months ago. And <clears throat> I'm I'm very pleased to be able to do this there, and I'm presenting. Uh, data from uh, 18,000 people who took a test that I developed, which I developed, by the way, in part because of work I was doing with Scientific American. It kind of grew out of out of some writing I was doing for the magazine. And a lot of people have taken this test, which kind of pinpoints where you fall on uh, what I call the sexual orientation continuum. And sure enough, I found what what Alfred Kinsey. Uh, predicted many, many years ago, I found that there are very few people who are truly straight or gay, and in fact, those terms are highly misleading terms, and I found that more than 90% of the people who take this kind of test end up somewhere in the middle of the sexual orientation continuum, uh, so that in fact, uh, you know, sexual orientation, number one, does fall in a continuum, and very few of us are out at the extremes, either the gay or the straight end of the continuum. So, according to your research, let's say most straight people are actually just mostly straight. That's exactly right. In fact, I have generated many, many different uh, kinds of graphs which break down the data in various ways. And if you if you just graph the uh, a frequency distribution of people who call themselves straight, that's exactly what you find is that, yeah, most of them are toward the straight end of the continuum, but believe it or not, they're straight people all the way at the gay end of the continuum as well. And the reverse is true. Uh, among people who call themselves gay, yeah, most of the people who are gay uh, are toward the, t- toward the gay end of the continuum, but there are people who call themselves gay who are almost at the straight end of the continuum, and the same is true among people who call themselves bisexuals and so on. So uh, sexual orientation is actually a, a continuous uh, variable it's not what people think it is, and I think we get into a lot of trouble uh, socially uh, because we have this crazy idea in our head that that sexual orientation is an either-or thing. It absolutely uh, is not, and this is exactly what Kinsey said um, more than half a century ago. What do we actually mean in in your survey by gay and straight? Then, what if somebody is uh, calls themselves gay? But according to your survey, they're actually way over on the straight end of the spectrum. What does gay, gay and straight actually mean here? Is it behavioral? Is it attitudinal? What does it mean? 
Well, the the gay and straight labels are just very approximate labels for almost for what for what you want society to believe you are, but they're not actually accurate labels for what you are. To describe your sexual orientation, you need two numbers, basically, two values. One number saying where you are in the continuum, and on my scale, you, the number ranges from zero, which would be pure straight, up to 13, which would be pure gay. So you need a number that says basically where you're kind of centered on that continuum. And then you need a second number, which is sexual orientation range, which is how much flexibility you have in expressing sexual orientation. With those two numbers, that, that actually tells you what your sexual orientation is, but the label does not. Oh. The label meaning straight or gay, that, right. that, that really doesn't tell you much at all. That tells you what you want to be or, or, or what kind of label is acceptable to you, but it doesn't really tell you about your sexual orientation. Right, like Larry Craig says he is straight. Perfect example. But some of his behavior may indicate possibly otherwise. Well, that's a perfect example because Larry Craig basically is, is saying, I call myself straight. There are reasons I call myself straight. It's a word I use to kind of describe some aspect of what I am. But, uh, you know, my behavior doesn't fit that in some respects. That's exactly right. And you see, the, the problem here, the flaw is with the label. The, the label, those labels are, I, I've come to believe that those labels are, are just, uh, not just useless, but they're actually problematic. They're troublesome. They cause us trouble as a society. Literally, based on what I've learned uh, since I've been studying this, if I had the power to just obliterate the labels and instead get people to, to think of in these continuum terms, I would do it in, in, a, in a heartbeat because I think, frankly, our society would operate more smoothly if we had more accurate information about sexual orientation, if we were more realistic in the way we talked about it and the way we thought about it, I think we'd have a much much more, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, peaceful society. You know, very interesting. You, you make me think of a speech uh, in, the, in the film Angels in America uh, that Al Pacino as Roy Cohn has, where he's, he's just been diagnosed with HIV and his doctor is explaining to him that he's gay and Al Pacino, as Roy Cohn says, I am not gay. I have sex with men, but I am not gay. Right, right. Because, and then he goes into it some more and it's really quite interesting. He says, gay people in this society do not have any power. And I am one of the most powerful <laughs> people in the country. Right. Therefore, I cannot be gay. I, I, I am a straight man who has sex with other men. Right. It's, it's, you know, what, what's, what's absurd here is, is how these labels are used. And it's very unfortunate because, you know, you can think of this in terms of eye color versus height. Now, eye color, we think of as, as you know, existing in discrete categories. And it does more or less. There, there is some continuousness in eye color, but it's not unreasonable to think of it in discrete terms. Someone has blue eyes, someone has brown eyes. Now, with height, uh, it's, it, it's obviously on a continuum, and we don't fool ourselves thinking otherwise. We don't automatically call half of us tall and half of us short. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be absurd. If you, if you said to people, I think from now on we should call half, half of us short and half of us tall, 
right? No one would go along with that. They say, no, that's crazy. It exists on a continuum. Now, that's, you see, that's the point I'm trying to make about sexual orientation. Uh, it, it's exactly like height. It's not somewhat like height. It's exactly like height. There's a continuum period, and it's ludicrous to try to draw a line and say half of us are tall or gay, half of us are short or straight. It's, it's absurd. It's wrong. And as I say, it also causes us terrible trouble in terms of misunderstandings and hatreds. And, uh, you know, it, it's just bad for society to have this uh, this false information floating around. By the way, the, the paper I'm presenting is with 18,000 subjects, but well over 100,000 people now have taken that test. Uh, and And the more data I collect, the smoother the curves get. And not only that, I get the same curves in the United States and in other countries around the world. So uh, the, what I'm talking about is universal. Sexual orientation lies on a continuum like height does, period. That's very interesting that you're getting uh, cross-cultural replication there. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm getting slightly different curves for females versus males. Uh, females skew a little bit more uh, toward the gay end of the distribution. I actually get slightly different results for uh, people from different uh, subcultures, but they're just slight differences. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thing, and but no matter how you look at it, those labels straight and gay are problematic. They're wrong. Very interesting stuff. Let's uh, let me let you go, but first let's let's do a few plugs. You've got uh, you've got the book coming out in a few months that you were talking about about uh, computers speaking with humans. And yes, that book is called Parsing the Turing Test, and it has a long subtitle about the quest for the thinking computer, and uh, that's coming out in January with uh, Springer. And you also have a book out currently called The Case Against Adolescence. Yes, and the website for that is thecaseagainstadolescence.com, and I did a piece for Scientific American uh, called The uh, the Myth of the Teen Brain that is related to that uh, that particular book. And and briefly, what what's the whole book about? Well, that book is about the artificial extension of childhood past puberty and uh, the enormous uh, harm that has come from that extension. And it's about treating young people like individuals instead of just automatically assuming that because they're under a certain age, they're all incompetent. It's about the extraordinary competence, actually, of young people and the fact that we need to we need to stop judging them by age and find ways you know, one by one, case by case, to integrate young people into adult society uh, rather than trapping them in this this uh, absurd world of teen culture, which you know, causes a lot of grief, causes a lot of uh, base, basically mental health problems. Puberty currently ends after the second uh, postdoctoral fellowship? <laughs> uh, so I've heard, yes, among some, uh, some subcultures in America, that's supposedly true. you have any thoughts about this Kid Nation show on CBS? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about it. In fact, I, I had a uh, vice president from CBS call me up about that show uh, recently. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was a, just a grand idea, which uh, was getting skewered by the, by the press and by the pundits even before it started to air. But the idea of taking a bunch of young people, giving them responsibility for running their lives and running a small town, that's actually a sound idea. I actually show in my book, that there were there were a number of small communities run by young people, uh, both in the United States and Europe, uh, believe it or not, uh, just uh, less than a hundred years ago, and they were very successful. 
So the concept that CBS had was sound. Unfortunately, having viewed so far the first episode, uh, I can see why it is getting skewered. They, they, they kind of got off on some crazy tangents and, uh, you know, they're actually not letting these young people uh, run the town and they're, they've turned into almost a kind of a game show and, you know, with four different groups with different colors and different status in society and, it's it's turned out to be uh, so far uh, somewhat silly, but the basic concept is sound. And I'm actually working with a production company in England right now uh, to try to do the same kind of thing uh, in England uh, with again a number of young people running a small town on their own. I have no doubt, based on the data I've collected over the last decade, that young people have enormous capabilities that we've pretty much buried in modern society. Uh, and that they certainly are more than capable uh, not only of running a town on their own, but of probably doing so far better than we adults run our own towns. <laughs> well, that, w- that wouldn't be saying all that much. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can listen to you on Sirius Satellite Radio? Yes, I'm uh, just now starting my third year on Sirius. I'm um, on Channel 114 on Sirius, and you can get more information about the show on my website, which is drepstein.com. The show is called Psyched. Sounds good. Dr. Epstein, very interesting talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Steve. It's been great fun. The new issue of Scientific American Mind hits the stands October 9th. It'll also be available at www.siammind.com. And check out the weekly Mind Matters seminar blog, where psychologists and neuroscientists write about studies and trends they find exciting. That's at blog.siam.com. And Robert Epstein's website is simply drepstein.com. That's D-R-E-P-S-T-E-I-N.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, steroids may help a ball player swing the bat 15% faster, which can potentially increase the number of home runs by 10%. Story two, a bacteria species seems to have inserted virtually its entire genome into an insect species. Story three, in a tribe of hunter-gatherers, males with deeper voices had higher reproductive success. And story four, if Congress passes an appropriations bill currently under consideration, $100,000 goes to a group that works to kill evolution education. Time's up. Story four is true. An appropriations bill for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education contains a small item that would send $100,000 to the Louisiana Family Forum of Baton Rouge. The funding earmark for the Family Forum was added by Louisiana Senator David Vitter, who's mostly been in the news lately because of his escapades with prostitutes. And according to the National Center for Science Education, the Family Forum's website used to include what they themselves called a battle plan to combat evolution, which they said was a dangerous concept that has no place in the classroom. That business was mysteriously removed after a reporter started asking questions about it. By the way, their anti-evolution battle plan was written by creationism activist Kent Hovind, currently in federal prison for obstruction of justice. Story three is true. Males with deeper voices had more children, at least in the Hadza tribe of Tanzania. That's according to research published in the journal Biology Letters. This is the first study to examine the correlation between voice pitch and childbearing success 
and the results point to a role for voice pitch in Darwinian fitness in humans. Story two is true. Almost the entire genome of a Wolbachia bacteria species was found in the genome of a Drosophila fly species. Such lateral gene transfer between bacteria and multicellular organisms may be more common than had been thought, according to a report in the September 21st issue of Science. Gene transfer may be one way that organisms get new genes and functions, you know, on the fly. All of which means that story one about steroided up ballplayers swinging 15% faster is totally bogus, because what is true is that a physicist has concluded that steroids might help a ballplayer swing the bat just 4% faster. But that small increase could drive a 50% increase, 50% increase in home runs with a lot of balls that used to be just short of the fence, now just over the fence. For more, check out the September 25th edition of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including the blog, Ask the Experts, and the latest science news, all at www.siam.com. And you can write to us at podcast.siam.com. And I'll be giving a public talk on October 4th at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go to www.news.wisc.edu slash 14162 for more information. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.